welcome back to Legit Bat, a live show for you. It's been a bit, and uh, sorry for pummel- pummeling everyone this week. I'm on vacation, so we've done show after show this week, it seems like. So <clears throat> we are joined today by Howdy Mikowski, and Matt from The Great Deception is co-hosting in place of Ben today. How's it going, Matt? Good. How you guys doing? Fantastic. So glad you could make it with all the, the bullshit going on at your house. Um so I don't, I'm not Greg Carlwood, so I don't do like three paragraphs of introduction. I kind of let the uh, guests do that themselves. So howdy, how, uh, introduce yourself however you would like. Okay. Hey guys, uh, thanks for having me on to, to do a talk for you. And um, right now, I'm a simple answer. I'm trying my best to stay sane in a very insane reality. And um, I guess that'll be the discussion point of our of our show. What would you like me to What would you like me to talk about as an introduction? Would you like uh, what sort of background would you be interested in knowing? Uh, just what actually got I, I know some of your history and uh, some of the terrible things you had to deal with in your life. Uh, and if people want to know about that, they can go listen to the Higher Side Chats episode you did with Greg. Um, what pointed you specifically in the direction of all these crazy things you're looking at? Was it one thing, or did you just kind of get into it on accident or how, how did that all happen? Um, yeah, kind of if somebody uh, watched that higher side chat, that's a, for, for a complete viewpoint, but it was more, it's been like a giant stepping stone of going through my own personal trauma, dealing with that, going through 10 or 15, I mean, 10 years of studying ancient Egypt, alchemy, hermeticism, the time I spent with native medicine men and, and the Korean monk, uh, then going through a death experience about 15 years ago, all the things that came through from that experience, moving forward to uh, looking into getting the in, getting the insight of needing to look into history and the world fairs like you're finally seeing of the Chicago Exposition behind Matt there. And then slowly in the last two and a half years, moving back into a more Gnostic Cathar view of reality where it's ripping apart ripping apart the fabric fabric of this world and asking, you know, what is this place really? So it's been a giant 25 year stretch of time in which I've gone through really valuable periods. I've gone through periods of difficulty and challenge. I've gone through periods where I've, I've been somewhat arrogant and thinking I know a lot. I've gone through periods where I think I don't know anything at all. And um, <clears throat> thankfully for whatever, some strange reason over the last couple of years, it's come to a point where people feel they're getting value hearing me talk and reading my book. So here we are. Awesome. How many books have you written now? You're on the... Uh, in in sort of on the these fields, it's four. Four, okay. So uh, Howdy's yeah, new book the, is... Yeah, the Power of Then was the first one. Sorry, The Power of Then was the first one. That's on ancient Egypt and uh, symbolism and alchemy. Falling for Truth is about my death experience and kind of um, uh, semi-attack against standard spirituality, uh, exposing the expositions on mostly the world's fairs but the the historical realm of the 1800s and then my new one exit the cave um which is more about the idea of simulation plato's cave reincarnation yeah so that's those are the main four package of of what's out awesome uh yeah i'm looking forward to that your book number two on exit the cave is going to be coming out next year right I hope so. Uh, I'm just getting the one. I'm just getting it out now. It just actually the print version is like coming out now. Finally, in the next couple of days. So um, we, we, you know, I mean, we'll see. We we have no. We have to be honest. We have no idea where our reality is going. We have no idea where this because this thing is spinning and it's spinning in 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 a bizarre way. 
um, in one sense, that's good. And we can get to all that point of why, why the chaos is good um, for some people. Um, but in general, it's, it's also meaning a lot of people are starting to ask a lot of questions about a lot of different areas they've never gone to. And I think that's kind of the focus of Exit the Cave. Exit the Cave is really, for someone who comes to or listens to this interview, I mean, it's, I'm going to sound probably very negative in a lot of this interview. Um, and that's okay, because the end result of all the negative talk is actually, to me, something very positive. It's, it's finding your true nature. It's finding your true self. It's finding the truth of what you are in reality. The problem is we have so many blinder walls in front of us, belief structures. And generally, what's interesting, everybody has the same basic foundation belief structures. So when I start talking about the stuff I talk about now, it, it hits everybody. And, and a lot just will shut it down and say, well, he's he's just wrong because he's saying something I don't like as opposed to, yeah, why don't you go with where I'm, where I'm going with this? It's a thesis. I don't know what's going to happen after death for sure. I don't know exactly how this reality was created, but 25 years have given me some insights. Just go with it for a while. See if it leads you to some interesting questions. Cause if that's what it's all about, it's finding what's inside yourself. It's what, it's what you truly know. The problem is you have to get through this blinder wall to even actually see what it is you really know. And that's that's what the work was about. That's what the Korean monk was doing with us 25 years ago. Even we didn't know that's what he was doing. It's kind of like it took us 20 years looking back now to start figuring out, oh, that's that's what he was doing back then. Oh yeah, okay. You know, we just thought he yeah. was an idiot uh, having fun irritating us, but he was actually not. He was, he was showing us our garbage, you know? And that's one of the things, Howdy, that I, that I love about your perspective is you're not you've basically told everyone listen i i can't prove anything for the most part but what i can do is i can start disproving the lies and i can i can get rid of them and get them out of the equation and then focus my attention in, in a different direction and that's that's changed my perspective on the way i do research and things because for the longest time i was trying to prove things and yeah. it, it, a it's it's self-sacrificing, you know, you're not, you're not making any progress when you're going on a mission to prove something um, because right. you're going to use cognitive dissonance a lot of times to take out the information you don't want to hear. And, uh, and, and so I, I really respect that approach that you have to be able to say, okay, listen, I may not have the answer, but what I can tell you what's not true. And then we can start working off of that point. And I think that's, that's big for a lot of people nowadays. Thanks, Matt. I think that's one of the one of the greatest pieces anybody can take from anything. It's that idea that it was, and I kind of got that. I understood it more from reading some of Richard Rose's work before he died, uh, which is the idea of you don't really know what truth is. If you knew what truth was, you'd already be there. So as long as you're still having to look for it, you you instead have to yeah find false. And there's always lots of false we can find. So you find something false, and and it's important not just to find it. You have to let it go. You have to drop it. You have to get rid of it, and then you go look for some other false, and and. So it's also this, you have to look at many different areas, many different pieces, and eventually you'll get to the one thing that you just cannot drop. There'll be one thing eventually that tries hard as you might, you can't drop it, and then you realize, oh, that's the truth. And it, it'll, it should be generally, for ones who are being honest about it, because of course there's lots of people lying, you know, to make a good amount of money and sell books to say, you know, I know everything now, I'm enlightened, I've got the truth, I've got these 80 books, you just buy them. But generally, the ones that I've come across that I feel the most honestly that they touch something truthfully, they always will dis describe it when they come to this point of like, it's not anything of what I thought it was going to be. And that's, 
it, it was something similar when I had my death experience and the things I revealed. It was nothing like I ever thought an experience like that should be. And, and that gave it more, more truth to it. Because if it's, if you go after something and you find exactly what you're expecting, then you don't know if it's, did I just make it myself? Did I just manifest it? Did I just create what I wanted to create? If it comes to you and it's so, and, and again, you know, it's true, but it's so different than you've ever thought. That's kind of what it was like with the world's fairs, Matt. I mean, when I first looking in, when I first started looking into the Chicago exposition, um, I expect, I thought I knew what I was going to find when I first started studying it. And within like a week, I was just thrown on so many different levels of like, what, 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 this is insane. What, this is insane. And I had to realize, okay, I know nothing about this at all, zero. And I had to actually start from like literally a five-year-old child and say, okay, I know nothing about this. I'm going to start clean. And that's kind of, I think that's the path for anything. Oh, and, and, and. I got to say your your book is like the intro to so many people into the world's fairs um because i i think your approach is one but you also start exposing it layer by layer and you show that it okay it not only was it chicago it happened in london it happened in paris it happened in philadelphia new york st louis you know you go all over and they all meet a similar fate they're all destroyed. They leave one or two behind. And, but there's, you know, I know you mentioned a lot, they lose money and these people are businessmen and we know that they do not like to lose money. And for them to keep rolling these fares out one after another, and there, there was a, there has to be a bigger message to these things. There has to be right. more to them uh, than just a fair. And, and and I think your book does such a great job of, of showing that, that, listen, they, there was more to this agenda. There was, you know, you had human zoos, you had baby incubators, you had all sorts of technology and things in, in one arena. And then all of a sudden, after six months, poof, it's gone. And that's it. And we move on to the next one. Which is exactly the same. That's the that's the other key part. When you look at them closely, they're actually the same. Mm -hmm. It's the almost juice. like they pick them up and move them in 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 many instances. Some of these buildings and just yeah. like it's like they pick them up, drop them in in the new city. And the city choices yeah. are very interesting as well. I always, yeah. you know, you look at Buffalo, you look at Omaha. Some of these places at the time, you you don't really know much, and then you start digging into the history and the land itself, and you see, oh, these are places of greater significance than we were told, and and not in this time period, but in a different time period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just Ooh, amazing. I think that's one of the most uh, interesting things that you brought up on uh, the higher side chat is a. Uh, that idea that the simulation, if you were in one, could possibly only be five days old or a day old. Like you said, the Dark City reference, I was like, wow, yeah, that actually makes sense. So it the other part was what Matt was talking about with the baby incubators. Uh, it makes total sense that they would want, you know, a fresh, fresh crew of people to be able to indoctrinate real easily right after a reset. They had I mean, if they're children, they have no memory of what might have gone on before that. So they. It's just a blank slate bringing them in and this is your reality now and how you know here's what your history looked like for the last thousand years and i think the one thing we can all agree on is that um there's a lot of things in history that are like verifiably not true but 
trying to figure out how to prove that's kind of hard since we aren't there and all we have to go on is books that the victors wrote. Yeah. And okay. So we're, we're, we're moving into the, the discussion topic now for, for those of you listening. Um, so what, uh, what Joe's sort of describing for those of you don't, who maybe don't um, recognize his comment, this idea that, that I brought up, others are bringing up, of course, now that, that this might be a simulation that we're in some sort of simulated reality. And, and I, I, I use the term just for the standpoint of a metaphor. I don't say it's an actual simulation, or I don't say it's an, like an actual computer program, but we can use that as a metaphor. So the, the problem becomes, okay, if it is some type of artificial, well, it isn't, we know it's an artificial realm. My own experience has taught me it's an artificial realm. But if we, if we use the simulation model, the simulation, a simulation starts at a particular time. There's a particular day one of any video game when the game starts, you know, uh, February 19, uh, seven, uh, 1874, that's the day that the video game starts. Okay. The problem is we have a history of tens of thousands of years. Maybe, you know, scientists try to tell us it's billions of years old. But if we're in a simulation, there's a particular date when the simulation began, day one. Let's just use just for the sake of our, our conversation, 1900, because it's an even date. Let's say it's 1900. That means all of our history after 1900 occurred from the standpoint of the reality we've come to experience. But everything we think of as prior to 1900 doesn't exist at all. It's just a copy of something put in its backstory. It's like it's it's a, it's a, the robots on Westworld. The robots on Westworld have what they believe is a giant history in their in their in their uh, personal memory bank, but that's just that's just backstory that's been plugged into them. They're still just robots and they're they've lived an X number of years, but they think they've lived 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And that's so it's one thing if we're saying, oh, the simulation yeah, started in 1900 and that's all of our history. But then, like Joe said, well, what if the simulation is 12 days old? What if the simulation started 12 days ago? Therefore, the only the only real, actual, tangible experiences we've had are the last 12 days and everything before that is just backstory, just something that was plugged into us before the simulation was switched on. And here's the problem. We don't know. We really don't know. And figure trying to even figure it out is challenging. I'm not saying we're in the last five days of the simulation, but my guess is it could be anywhere from 20 to 30 years to maybe two to three or 400. I don't think it's much older than that, actually, the simulation itself. But when you read, when you hear what the Gnostics and the Cathars have to say, specifically, very good sources of information, they claim this is a copy. That's a very important word. They claim our reality is a copy. So if it's a copy, what is it a copy of? And that makes it very interesting. Say, okay, the simulation started in 1860. Okay. So that means 1859 and the buildings we have and the stories we have, in a sense, they're real, but not from our realm. They're real from the realm that it's copied from. So there's a realness to it, but it's still, it'll cause a problem, Joe, like you say, of looking back to it because it won't actually totally, what's the word, what's the word I'm looking for? It won't totally fit into the way our realm is constructed. So when we're looking back at the past at a certain point beyond wherever the simulation started, it'll never seem right. It'll never fit right because it'll be, it's a copy of somewhere else. And this thing is going in its own direction, its own way, its own whatever. So when you begin to feel that is possibly true, it helps when you start to look at historical events because you don't feel 
the confusion starts to make sense. Oh yeah, I can understand ancient Egyptian periods, pyramids because they probably weren't built in our realm. They were built in this other realm and they are just, they're copies of those. And we have, we don't really know what they are because they're not even from our universe. I don't know if any of you guys have been like, for example, spent a lot of time in Egypt or at the, at the sites in, in Mexico or Peru. But like when I'm at, when I'm at Giza or I'm at Dashur, I'm at Abu Sir, I'm at Teotihuacan, I feel like I'm in another universe. I energetically, I don't feel like if I'm, if I'm at a, at a, just an ancient site, some old sites, I still feel like I'm here. But when I'm at those places, I literally feel like energetically. Yeah. That's the best word I can describe it. I'm in another universe. And it's why I love going to these places, not just for what's there and the research and the study. It was because I actually feel so centered, so clear, so aware, because I know on some level, I'm not actually in, I'm not actually touching this reality. I'm touching some other place where these things originated. Yeah. And that's it's almost like a portal, that. right? Where you're reaching in and reaching out kind of thing. You know, you're half in, half out because you're standing here, but you're feeling that energy from the other world. Kind of. I mean, like uh, if we take uh, what are known as Egyptian false doors, Egyptian false doors do feel like a portal. And I, I, I've talked about this in my old books and some other things of how I think those those false doors work, the portal, how, how the, the effects they've had on me. Like um, if you're ever at an Egyptian false door, what I've done is if I stand facing the false door, you might have to, if you don't know what we're talking about, just look up like Egypt false door, Saqqara false door, whatever. But if I stood facing like this way towards them, it was, it was nothing. It was just me looking at the door. But as soon as I turned around, so my back was to that, that false door, I instantly felt a pull and it was like dragging me. And I had to actually like dig my, like have put roots on my feet to actually stand still. And the few times that I didn't, that I just said, okay, I'm going with this. I was literally dragged into the false door and I, bl I blacked out for like a second. I hit the door and I, I unblacked out. I was here, but I know if I was, if maybe you've done some ceremony, some ritual, some whatever, that would have been your, your portal and you would have gone through. So when you're saying portal, I, I, I see them as like places like this on the site, but the site itself, I can't describe it as a portal because it's, it's like, it's not that it's, it's not that it's linked to somewhere else. It is somewhere else. Yeah. It's like that, that's as bizarre. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's completely, it's actually, it's actually there, but I'm here and I'm, but you're touching it there. So it's not even like the, a, a, a portal that moves you there. You're already there, even though you're here. It's very hard to describe. Like it's out of phase with this uh, current reality or something. I've heard that yeah. described like that a yeah. lot. And I, yeah, that's yeah. why I love this idea that you brought up because it explains a lot of uh, historical anomalies like the pyramids and Gobekli Tepe and all these all these old things that nobody really has any explanation for. And they keep pushing the date back further. Or maybe it was 14,000 years or you know, pre-flood, post-flood, whatever. And even, even the Great Flood, I mean, that could be some kind of anomaly too. We, like you said, there's no way to know, but it does remind me a lot of the matrix, not so much in a computer simulation, but of the, the copy of the world. It's such a perfect yeah. uh, analogy to it because it's a copy of the world that used to exist. But w w when you pop out of that, then it's a completely different world. The sky is scorched and who knows what our uh, reality actually looks like. But I, I know a lot of people that agree with you that say this is a, uh, a copy or a, as Andy says, a, a mimicry. He, seen, he thinks that everything is a, a mimicry and almost a, a perversion of the, the real world. Or I don't even know how to put it. How do you put into words something that you don't really know? 
I think you've done a much better job at it than I. <laughs> well, I, I've just tried to listen to what others have told me. I know some medicine men that I knew back in Canada, they told me it's a it's a shadow world or it's an opposite world, that everything is upside down here. So I, that was how they kind of described it to me. Um, I think I even think of, uh, if people are looking into movies, because my, my uh, chapter eight of my new book is looking just at movies and television shows, looking at yeah, Westworld and Lost and Donnie Darko, but Dark City to me, which I think is the original Matrix. I think actually the Matrix is a movie that is born out of Dark City because and it's weird. If you really look into Dark City in detail, you will see that it's the Matrix like a hundred years or a thousand years before. And so there you've got this idea. Here's Dark City, the city just floating in space. It's a copy of something. We're not told where it's from. The humans are, we don't know where the humans have come from. We don't know how they've got there. We know nothing. We know nothing about anything. So it's really, it's Plato's cave. And like I talk about in chapter two of the, of the new book, Plato's cave is, is actually missing more information than it is in any way giving information. Plato's cave is like, the, as an analogy, it's like a giant, is a giant, um, almost misdirection at times but dark city when you walk and i don't want to throw too much away of the movie for for, for for if you're seeing it but it seems like it has this happy ending people will see the movie dark city as here's john murdoch who is the original one now remember in the matrix they tell neo there was a one before you yeah. there was one who had and that's that's john murdoch from, from dark city and because if you look closely when you see the movie the area zion in in season in the second matrix that is the place where the strangers were living in Dark City. Because actually they used the same two sets. The Matrix filmed on all the sets of Dark City. So it's the same buildings that they're jumping on. It's the same stairway. So it's not it, everything about the two movies are actually linked visually and and even timeline. Timeline. But what's interesting is when the, when that movie ends, people feel it's a happy ending. Oh, he's he's reclaimed the city. These alien strangers are gone. He's back with his girlfriend, even though the girlfriend doesn't remember who she is and doesn't know who he is. But okay, he's back with her, and it's sunlight. Everything's great. But nobody is awakened. Nobody actually knows who they are. Nobody knows the the nature of their reality. No one knows they're floating in outer space. And if we see that the Matrix is dark city in a thousand years, then we see that well, that's the world that got scorched. That's the world that got destroyed. That's the world that these, these robot beings took over and impotted all the humans. So for all that John Murdoch achieved, did he achieve anything at all? The, the Matrix, I think that's the, the, the real Dark City reference of where it goes is that as long as you're trying to fix this reality, it's not going to work for you. And that leads to the whole premise of my book. What I'll say something and I'll shut up and let you guys talk. Um, is that I think the standard foundation that we as a general, and I, I had it for a long, long time. The foundation belief is this is a place made by a loving God who cares about us, who built this realm for our, our experience and our growth as a learning tool so that our soul can grow and we can eventually rise out of this realm and re rejoin this creator again. And that's the story we're told. But the Gnostics and the Cathars and some ancient civilizations, they had a different story. And that story was, yeah, there is this, this, and they don't call it a good force. They call it an absolute force, something that is just, it's total, it's complete. It's it's not good or bad, it's everything. But there was a split and, and something split from that, uh, an evil being, um, a lot of it was a demiurge, the Rex Monday, Lucifer, whatever you want to call it. And 
created this realm. And it created this realm as a trap to take divine sparks from this original place into this realm and keep us trapped here. And if that is true, as I'm beginning to see that is, that explains a lot about how our realm is, how our realm is structured, what we're really doing here, and more importantly, why we're wasting our energy trying to fix it when our energy should be spent on going home. Is that kind of what you were getting at with the Plato's Cave thing that uh, they're trying to figure out what reality is, but when they should just be getting the hell out of the cave? Well, partially, I've got... Uh... So when it comes to Plato's cave, for that analogy, that's that's always been presented as the the great spiritual analogy of, re, of of reality. This is the explanation. Now I always thought that was true because that's what the books told me to believe. So I thought, well, these people have been doing it longer than me. I guess at the time they must know more than me. So oh, Plato's cave, and there is stuff in Plato's cave, um, which, quick nutshell, right? The story is oh, there's some. Uh, it's it's. Um, a story of Socrates talking to Plato's brother and he explains that imagine if there were a group of prisoners and they're brought into a cave and they're placed in seats and they are held in place so that they can only see the wall in front of them and then a fire is placed behind them shadow objects are placed in front of the fire or objects are placed in front of the fire that create shadows on the walls illusionary things that people start to believe are real and and that's how it kind of begins but we're missing the we're missing the initial first step. I can't believe no one's asking the, the initial question, and that is, well, what prisoners? Where are the prisoners coming from? Why are they prisoners? If they're prisoners, why aren't they in a prisoner of war camp? Why are they in a cave? Uh, why do you want to have them in a cave anyway? Who built the cave? Is it a natural cave? Did the did uh, did these beings, whoever who are doing this thing, did they build the cave themselves? So we know nothing about the origin of the cave. We know nothing about the origin of the so-called prisoners. And we know that the prisoners are us. That's that's inferred in the, in the allegory. So giving nothing of our origin, nothing is explained why these, whoever these beings are who are creating the fire and the shadow thing, why are they spending so much time to fool a bunch of prisoners in some cave that we don't know anything about. So we haven't even got into the detail of the story of Plato's cave. We're like literally at step one and it's like, but here's all the, all this important stuff is missing. Why? Why is that missing in the story? Yeah. And how, how did that kind of describes the world fair too? If you think about it, you brought all these people in, they were kind of under a spell. Most of them you know, had never seen buildings like this before. I mean, uh, granted, the, the folks who were coming across from Europe and, and the elite who had money, yes, but the, the common folk that they brought into these fairs, this would have been a spectacle that like nothing they would have ever seen before. And then they're they're brought here, they go through what they spend usually about a couple days, if not a week there, and then they go back to their town and they spread this magical tale of this place that they saw there. But then after the fair is done, they just burn the whole thing up. So there's no, nobody else can go back and check it ever again. There's no real, you know, they leave the one building obviously, but I feel like that's, that's in line with the, the cave that they, they gave this to us and then just boom, took it away. And, 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 and also when you're took, yeah, when you're looking at it through that lens, uh, trying to compare it to Plato's cave, because you've obviously looked at a lot of photographs, of course, like I have, um, the people look out of place. Uh -huh. It's not just like you say, oh, they've never seen stuff like this. It almost looks like they've never been anywhere before. In many cases, it looks like it's their first day on on earth. Yeah, like they just... almost look like they haven't been anywhere. Like they, they literally just walked out of like a warehouse 
And this is like their first day in the world. And I, I, I can't say that anything like that is true, but it's on the table of possibility. It's again, we, we know we, we had this giant wipeout of, of the world before that time, one way or another, we have a giant uh, destruction of the world. We don't know what the population was and how much of the population was destroyed and what an interesting way to re-indoctrinate the world. So if you throw it back into Plato's cave, you're then it's a similar story. If if you're now if we if we play this analogy, well, if the people aren't really from haven't been like living in the world, where did they come from? How do they get manufactured? How do they all of a sudden show up at the fairs to, in a sense, be indoctrinated into the new world? So you can see if you're playing that road, yeah, you're you're playing that you're asking the same questions that you'd be asking in Plato's cave. It's it's a similar, it's taking you down a similar line where you're the, the average person is already moving this direction. This is kind of what I was talking with even reading Plato's cave story. You start reading it, oh, I'm getting into it. And but wait a minute, stop. Page one. We've got all these questions on page one that aren't here. Why aren't they there? Is it, it was a one, we used to be a much longer story and then it was edited out as many religious and other texts were, they were whittled down. That's a possibility. It was a different, it was a, it, what, was it a completely different story? It was changed or was the story written in this manner? Cause it was actually meant as partial deception in the way it was being created. Again, we don't know, but these are all questions we should ask with any material like this to be asking, what actually are we dealing with? And why are we dealing with it? We always again think if if someone, particularly if it's ancient, oh, if they're if it's something ancient, they're writing it and, and they're really smart and they're they're sharing something to help us, we don't step in and think this could be deception right from day one. That this this could be a total fake right from day one. This could be designed to screw with us. And we don't we don't start with that as an even possibility on the table. We trust the stuff. And I did too, right? I went to history, I, I went to university, the historian. I trusted a lot of stuff that looking back, I never should have trusted without a second level of verification. And that's, we're back to the early stuff we said, you know, it's about finding false. It's about find, to find true, you find false. And to find false, you have to be honestly looking at every single thing you come across and asking, how can I prove it's true? Yeah. And that's funny too, the, the so-called ancient stuff. I mean, we don't really have a way to verify it's as ancient as we're told it is either. So it could have been something way more recent that they're like, this is ancient, you know, emerald tablets or, you know, any, any of that kind of stuff. But speaking of ancient stuff, I heard you briefly mention the Cathars. Go into that a little more because that's something I've only heard about recently. Okay. Uh, what do you know about Cathars? Let's start there. Uh, very little. Matt, do you know anything about them? They were wiped out by the Catholic Church. That's all I know. And I want to say they were Gnostics. And I think it was in the 1300s, I want to say, that they, they, they were. I actually just uh, heard someone mention them the other day and downloaded a couple books last night. And uh, I'm about to start digging into them because I've heard they're interesting. But howdy, it's all yours. Okay. And, uh, you know, making sure, Jen, you just jump in whenever you want anything asked. Just fire away make sure you know you're i'm acknowledging your existence so um so the cathars we know very little about this group actually because as matt said in in and actually it was yeah in the early 13th century according to the history we're given uh the church of rome decided they were too dangerous and needed to be exterminated in the first 
um, the first crusade against its own people because they considered themselves to be Catholic uh, or true Christians is how they describe themselves, bonzam, true Christians. But the Catholic Church was very, I should say Catholic Church, the Church of Rome was very uh, threatened by them. They were a group in Southern France. We don't know where they came from. They're roughly coming at the exact same time as the Knights Templar. They're coming at the exact same time as the Grail romances are starting to be written uh, in province and parts of uh, Western Germany. They're at the same time as the wandering troubadours are giving stories of this very new type of courtly love that's going on through that part of the world. And you're, 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 all of this is mixed together into one giant pot of unknown stuff. And the Cathars had one main focus. They're, they, they had two, I mean, they had a series of beliefs and structures in their system, uh, which included equality for women, which in quote, included pacifism, which included general vegetarianism, a lot, of, a lot of ideas. But the main ones were one, this is a world created by an evil, by an evil god, which they called Rex Mundi, the equivalent of the Demiurge to the Gnostics. And therefore, nothing in this realm had any significance at all other than leaving to that this was a trap of that you were in a reincarnation trap and their their only job in life was to break that trap and to never return here they they began to get in trouble with the christian church and now i, I know like, i only gave uh, joe the first six chapters of my book and the 14th the chapter 14 is all about the cathars and in fact a, a lot about southern france and a lot about uh, the possibilities that the New Testament is really describing Southern France and not the Middle East, which would change everything about that that text and that document. Um, and I've got like 14 parts on my YouTube channel if you want to go hear all the stuff I have to say about Southern France and Rennes Chateau and the Knights Templar. But the other one that the Knights that that, that the by calling themselves good Christians, one of the things they were very clear about is also this is a simulation. So they rejected the story of Jesus dying for them on the cross for their sins. The reason they rejected that in that format was because they said he could not be the son of God as, as presented because he would have had to take a physical form. By taking a physical form, that would have immediately made him uh, sin. So as soon as you're in the material world, you're in the realm of Rex Monday, so you're sinned. So the only answer they could give that the way that story could read as truthful is if, uh, if Jesus appeared in the world as a hologram. So if it was appeared as a hologram in which to transfer information to people, that to them made complete sense. And therefore, elements of his teaching could be followed and used. And they, they felt they followed it absolutely as it was written in the scripture. But they 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 took out anything that would have that could have made him physical because as soon as he became physical and was supposed to take the laws of matter, that would then destroy the whole story as it was presented. All of these kinds of things and their close connection to the Knights Templar, which is another group that I think gets gets wrongly presented in history. They'd like to try to make them early Freemasons, early control members. Um, but to me, the Knights Templar are something very, very different and are almost an, um, the anti-side of all that. And, and I didn't go into it a massive amount of my book, but, but there, there I do have, a, a, like I say, a video on that subject. The point being, the whole point of the chapter was the Cathars are supposed to have a particular ceremony known as the Consolamatum. And the Consolamatum was meant to end your cycles of reincarnation. Okay, sounds good. That's what my book's all about. How do we exit the matrix? How do we get out of the cave? So when I started looking into what is the consolamatum, what is actually going on? And 
if if it is what the little bits we have presented, I don't think that's getting anybody out of the reincarnation trap at all. Uh, what it was was it, and you had their 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 main priests. They didn't call them priests; they called them perfecti. But it was a male and female, and they were balanced. There had to be a male. There had to be a female. So it was this com this combination of the two, the masculine and the feminine, always working together. And they they claim that goes back to the original story, the real story of Jesus and the Magdalene, that they were a they were a complete couple. They were they were a, they were a, a matching pair. So they did all their ceremonies like that. But the ceremony, as it's described, is the reading of some Gnostic Gospels, some Gospels from uh, the, the New Testament, and the laying of hands down on the person who is going to get this cleansing of sin. And then when this ceremony was done, they were supposed to be free of reincarnation as long as they did not sin from that point on. What I've come to learn about how big the trap is here, how big the deception is, how many entities and beings are screwing with us on a daily basis, not just in this realm, but in the after-death realm, in the pre-birth realm, in the super-duper realm, in the angel realm, and whatever, either the Cathars themselves were fooled if that was their ceremony and they thought they were going to get out of here, and they, they didn't, why we're hearing so many stories of people, I'm a reincarnated Cathar, or they really did have the secret information of how to get out of here. And even during the Inquisition, even with the Inquisitors torturing them to death, they still wouldn't reveal the true secret of what their information was to get out of here. I'm not sure which side it falls on, but what we have is information that I present in the book, I don't think gets you out of here from, from a standpoint of reincarnation. So that's a short overview of the Cathars. If you have deeper questions, I can try to answer them as best I can. But again, we don't really know much about them. We only know what was told about them by the people who killed them off. It makes sense that they'd want to, you know, suppress that, especially if they had found a way to exit the reincarnation cycle. Uh, I heard you mention that maybe the Mayans were something similar to that. They were here and all of a sudden one day they just weren't like, or like you said, the Heaven's Gate cult, maybe Haley's Comet did pick them up. Maybe they didn't actually uh, die. They exited. Yeah, that's that's another interesting story, isn't it? Because we've got because well, Cathars is a group or one. We don't really know what happened to them. Same thing with the Knights Templar. We don't really know what happened to them. We have these stories of what happened, but we're not totally sure. We've got the Anasazi. If you're in uh, for you guys in the United States, so the Anasazi from the western uh, part of the country, they just disappeared. Right, same thing. They were there one day. All their stuff was sitting on the tables, and it, like literally, they're gone. And the Maya, as a culture, almost the Mayan culture, same thing, just vanished. And what's so weird about the Mayans is when the archaeologists tried to find what happened to them, they really can't find bodies. Like they know they had 10, 20 million people at the time, based on the on the size of their cities, but they've got no bodies. There's none. So there's no warfare. There's there, there, there's no like where did they go? Then they try to come up with these ideas of, oh, there was some sort of famine and they all had to move to some other part of the world. Yeah, but where? And where are the bodies? It seems like they literally just vanished. So the potential theory is, and it's just a theory, I don't, nobody come after me on this one, it's just a possibility that they, certain groups in the past got to the point where they did understand that you could exit the matrix, you could exit the cave while still alive, that you didn't have to wait until death, which seems to be the best doorway you have to, I call it, return home. 
um, that they could do it while they were live and maybe they did it as a group and maybe for some reason it's easier to do as a group rather than as an individual person I mean I don't know I'm still working on this for the next book this is some of the stuff I'm looking into is I kind of talked a lot about preparing yourself for, for the death experience in this current book and, and trying to get to understand the astral realm the after death realm but now I'm sort of also looking at okay what can some of these groups tell us about but can we just exit now and maybe um, not so much the heaven's gate, but what about the people who suffer uh, human spontaneous combustion? That's one of the weirdest things I've always come up with in my life. And if by chance you did raise your something to the point where you actually can exit the matrix, maybe the body just burns itself out while that's happening. So bizarrely, maybe some of those people who, who have this have had this experience happen to them left. I don't know. Yeah. Spontaneous human combustion thing is a whole rabbit trail. I've, I listened to quite a few shows on that, and it's definitely something real. I don't know why science is still denying it, as far as I know. It's something that yeah. happens. You can't explain it. So, nope, nope, didn't It's happen. like a deletion from the simulation yeah. in, in as an analogy. You just kind of disintegrate yeah. and dissolve. Um, so I have a question for you. So you said that in death, that seems to be the quickest way to get to the exit, the real exit. But um, the way the first six chapters of your book describe that is that that's a huge deception as well. As soon as we die, we're enveloped with love and light and comfort and told how special we are. But um, I haven't read the whole book yet, obviously, but I want to know what you think. How do you get past that? Because that seems much more deceiving than what we're even experiencing here, which is a huge deception as well. But to be to go through a death, and that's traumatizing in some cases, to then be comforted immediately would that's the easiest way to deceive. You're taking someone out of pain and then covering them in love and telling them it's okay, it's okay. How do you get out of that? Yeah, really good question. And yeah, you so you got chapter four, which in chapter four, I share a lot of near-death experiences of people who go through what we would call the standard near-death experience. That's where they normally see a, a tunnel of light, uh, white light, um, feelings of love and gratitude. Um, dead grandma, Jesus or Buddha will be there to lead them through the tunnel, uh, a life review. Um, th those are some of the, the standard things that come in. In chapter nine, I talk about some of the non-standard near-death experiences. People who seem to, because remember, the challenge is with it, it's always a near-death experience. So it's not actually death, it's near-death. And the death experience seems to be much longer. And there are people who've gone beyond the standard experience that tell us a completely different tale. They give us more information on what's possibly really going on there. So what seems to be really going on is, first of all, we've got these supposed beings of light that are there to help us and guide us and love us. If you know how to stare at them and look through them completely, you'll find out that they're not dead grandma and they're not Jesus and they're not Buddha. They're alien, what Gnostics would call archons, the first and first creations of the Demiurge who are really in charge of holding on and controlling this realm. They're the ones who are appearing as these other loving creatures for you. And like you say, you're they're coming, you're coming through very confused. You're coming through confused. You're given this drug of love, more love than you could ever experience. Boom. And you just feel so wonderful. And you're you're now now you're thrown off. And generally two of the ways it seems and I'll get to your I will I know you asked a question. I will get to it. Um the the they seem to focus so much on the life review. 
And particularly when you when you go through people who've gone through this after death life review, it's mostly about negative things, all the things that you did that you were bad. And it doesn't matter how wonderful of a life you've lived. These beings will find shit about you. I guarantee they'll find the day that you didn't pick up the neighbor's fallen apple that was in her hand. And they will try to show that this created the mess of her life and caused her to put a gun to her head and kill herself and whatever. And it's all your fault they will try this kind of stuff on you. So the life review is always designed to try to show you what an awful person you were. And that's why you have to come back. You're not good enough yet. You're not, you're not advanced enough. You haven't learned enough about love. So to answer your question, how do we prepare for that? I think there's a couple of ways that we, we prepare for what's likely going to happen. One is to research it. One is to honestly research the after-death experience and see that a lot of these very nice, which are transformative, the, the people who go through the standard near-death experience, they come back transformed. They're wonderful people. They're loving. They're the, they're the guy or girl you'd love to have at your table for dinner. But did they also get deceived? And that's the question you have to dig into and ask. If what I'm saying is probably true, then it's a couple of things to prepare. One is start recognizing that all of our life, we are giving away our authority to other people, to things outside of ourselves. We're constantly letting other people decide things for us, other things to make choices for us, things outside of ourselves to tell us what to believe. We're constantly praying to something outside of ourselves. I can go in a whole talk later on about prayer and what I've learned about the, 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 what, what prayer can really be. But we're, we're praying to things outside of ourselves, and we don't know what it is. We say, I'm praying to this, I'm praying to that, but how do you know? How do you know who it is? And how do you know what that energy is going towards? And yeah, sometimes you get what you want, but how do you know some being isn't, isn't playing with you, isn't giving you something here and it's going to get something back over there, just like a drug. So it's about, first step is learning how to take our own authority and realize the power we have as a human, not, to, not, not so as a human, but as this divine spark, as the deepest part of what is part of our soul. That has more power than anything in the dream, has more, more power than the Demiurge, more power than the Archons, more power than anything. So first we have to come back, find ways to come back in touch with our own inner power and our own authority and be comfortable being able to say, I know what's really true. And I'm going to be able to follow that because when you cross to the other side, when these beings try to have authority over you and tell you what to do, you have to not give it to them. You have to be able to say, you have no authority over me. This is a big uh, a conversation that happens in one of the Nakamadi documents, the Apocalypse of James. It also shows up in, in, in the weighing of the heart ceremony in the Egyptian Book of the Dead, where there's going to be what they call gatekeepers. And they're going to be asking you question after question after question. And a lot of the answers you have to give is, Basically, well, you have no authority. You're you're from this realm. You're from the simulation. I'm not from the simulation. I'm from like the father. I'm from home. So I'm going there. And that's kind of one of the pieces we have to do. Another that I would I would say is you need to know your life really, really well because you know you're going to go through this life review. Everyone who dies seems to get it. And if you've got pieces in your in your past that you don't know about or places in the past where you still feel guilt or shame or regret, guaranteed they're going to be pulling those up. So don't wait to try to deal with them after you're dead. Deal with them now. Dig into those experiences now while you have this opportunity and clean all that up and feel that you can walk in saying, yeah, I did some stuff. I didn't lie. I wish I had done this different. I wish I had done that differently, but I learned a lot from it. I changed. I grew. I transformed. I'm who I am now. I'm okay with how that played out. I learned from it, you know, and because if you don't, if you don't get through all that, 
that's another thing you're going to face. So that would be the first couple of things I would say. And then the other would be try to learn as many of the deception tricks as possible. There's a, a Star Trek Voyager episode that I highly recommend. It's called Coda. And it's uh, Commander Janeway dies or is in the process of dying and a being who is an alien being who's disguising him itself as her father is trying to get her to come into the tunnel of white light to finally end the death struggle. And she finally, she keeps refusing him, refusing him, refusing him. Finally, she realizes, oh, you need me to agree. You can't force me into the tunnel. I have to agree to go in the tunnel. And again, this is part of the understanding that bizarrely we're agreeing to all the garbage that they're making us that they're tricking us into believing and if we just don't agree to it if we say no i'm i'm not being involved in any of these contracts any of these negotiations are all being signed under deception and fraud I'm, I'm standing in my own power we at least give ourselves the space to at least make some decisions when we're in the after death realm and maybe in the after death realm, once you're in that place, you'll say, I want to come back. Okay. I really do. I, for whatever reason, I don't, I think this is a suffering pit of hell, but maybe you do. Okay. But you want to make that choice from the deepest bit of yourself, not because some being has tricked you into coming back. And then all of a sudden you're back in a new mother's womb and you're going, Oh, how did I get tricked in here again? Damn it. So there's my answer for you. But, if, you know, see where you want to take that from. I love it. There's a, so it's almost like uh, practicing for it. Like you were saying, researching it and kind of uh, preparing yourself for it. There's a great book. I, I think it was called the lost art of resurrection. I read it a couple of years ago and they, they go into some of the old ancient Egyptian. I'm, it's all probably theoretical, but basically doing these rituals to practice the death experience so that you know what to mm -hmm. do when you get there in a, Maybe uh, some of the, like the Cathars and Mayans, maybe they were doing that too and they were practicing and then they were able to do it while they were alive. And that's why they all just disappeared. Just ideas. But uh, yeah, I, what else can you do besides practice for it and research as much as you can? I, I think yeah, I, would, I would agree. Yeah. Things, things yeah. like lucid dreaming. That's a really good thing to partake in because in then in lucid dreaming, you're getting used to being in a state uh, in, in the dream world where you're in a potentially <clears throat> totally different form, but you're staying conscious out of body experiences where you're not even in a body and you're moving around and you're getting used to staying aware that normally when we were in a dream, we just, we just follow the dream environment. We're not lucid. We're not aware of what's going on, which we would need to be well in the after death state. Um, there was a book by Douglas Harding and in the book, he talked about meditation and he said, if you're meditating to try to be quiet and be happy, you're doing the wrong thing. He said meditation should be practicing being dead so that you're using your meditation practice, to literally practice death so that when death comes, you're ready for it. And that's, a, that's another thing what I guess that what the, uh, the Dzogchen Buddhism is doing. Dzogchen Buddhism, which is trying to put you into what they call the clear light, which is really the void. It's, it's, a, it's the place of nothingness. A lot of people actually... When they die, they don't go directly to this white light. They go to a place that they describe as nothingness, the void, where no time, no space, no, you know, just full but empty, right? That's the clear light of the void. And if I think if you have a choice, that's the best place to go to start with, because at least you're not going in the white light tunnel. So you're not coming back for sure, because once you hit the tunnel, it looks like you're getting reincarnated. Once you go in there, it's pretty hard to get out. So at least if you can be in the void, you're still in the cave, you're still in the matrix, but you're in a finer place 
place of it. And maybe you can think about it. I think that's maybe what the Dzogchen Buddhists are doing. They're trying to get people while still in a body so used to being in the void that it's like when they die, it'll just be natural. Their natural instinct is void. So they get into the void and they can at least, okay, what's going on? What do I need to think about? Because like you said, Jen, that for any, any my, my death experience never actually went into the, the other world part. My All my experience happened um, before I left my body, you might say, but that's a common thing in the near-death experiences to talk about at the beginning, I'm how confused they are. I just, I, I don't know what's going on. Where am I? What's happening? Where at? What's, you know, and in that confused state, like we all know, that's how cults and uh, and uh, gurus find their people. They find them when they're suffering and confused and and give them, give them the right answer that they want to hear at that time and boom, they're in. So that's kind of like, I think what the near death state is doing just on a bigger scale. Yeah, yeah, for sure. As humans, we're, we're so easily programmable and we crave um, guidance. I mean, as babies where we were just talking on another show that humans are like the weakest mammals. We come out of the womb crying, screaming, helpless, and can't even walk for a year or a year and a half. And other animals come out and they have to walk within a couple hours or the parents abandon them. So we yeah. we need everything done for us. And we're told, you know, do what I tell you to do because I said so, because this is the way it is. And that's how we grow up. Of course, people, as they get older, come out of that mindset and say, no, I'm going to think for myself. I'm going to rebel. I'm going to, you know, everyone's different. But we're kind of trained that way from birth to just follow and listen and depend. Right. It's another perfect way to set up the trap. You said, how old How old are your children? Just out of curiosity, I'm going to make a comment. How old are yours? 10 and 16. Okay. So you've gone through the age when they were one and two, obviously. So I was with a, a child that was two years old, just learning how to speak. I'm, I'm saying this because maybe Jen will have a, a story to tell back of, of her experiences. And I was watching the parents with this friends of mine, with the child, and the child never spoke of itself directly. It was always in the third person. She would always say, Sally wants a drink. Sally wants to go outside. Sally wants to go to her room. It was never, you know, the Sally thing and who she felt she was were two completely different things. And the parents would, no, no, you're Sally. You say, I want a drink. Now, Sally wants a drink. No, no, you're Sally. I want a drink. And I was realizing yeah. that, that the young child is still literally, they're still in this other realm, kind of. They're still there. And they still know that on some level, they know they're not the body. And it's the parents eventually saying no. And finally the child says, yeah, I want a drink. And it's kind of like the minute we've done that, the minute we've identified, I am my physical body. We're in. Did, did you see something like that when you're, when you guys were growing up? I would just, I'm just curious if this is universal or if it was just something unique I saw. I don't know. I don't quite remember. My daughter's so old now. Um, but uh, she did learn to talk very young and she was very repeating and mimicking. So if I told her to say something, she would just say it. I mean, I haven't. Matt, have you? How Your kiddo mm. is, how old is your kiddo? He's uh, nine. So yeah, I'm in the, in that ballpark and I don't remember a big, you know, third person phase. It was, okay. it was for the most part, he was me when he came out, you know, it was always, I want, I need, or yeah, that kind of, okay. so I think that's oh. pretty unique, Howdy. 
I, I, I was like, I was actually so, I was amazed that I had the opportunity to watch this experience. You know, I was like, wow. Another one I had similar to that was a, a, a mother and her, again, it was a daughter. She's maybe not a little older, five or six. And the daughter was saying, oh, look, it's a blue jay or something. Or no, it's whatever bird. And the mother, no, no, it's this other kind of, it's this bird over here. The kid's like, no, 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 it's a whatever. And, I, and I'm standing back saying, okay, we don't actually know what the child is perceiving. Because, of course, I know from all my years with the medicine men, with Carlos Castaneda's work, with whatever, I mean, I know that the world is just a perception. And my perception might not necessarily be the same as yours. And we've got a million different things going on here that we're not perceiving at all. What if the child is really seeing something that, like, the, we can't, and we're actually finding ways to, you know, the, the the invisible the invisible friend they have the whatever but oh no it's it, you don't have that invisible friend but we often find out later when somebody goes through like a shamanic um, cycle in their lives that often um, if they find their power animal they'll remember oh yeah you used to be around when I was three all the time what happened to you well you you stopped believing in me so I stopped showing up you know yeah, so we have I, these I wonder howdy what what causes yeah. that right what takes that out of us because We've all had that as a child, right? You're born almost with that, that ability to believe in something greater. And then it, it seems like right around that three, four, five age, it seems to get worked out of us. And yeah. and, and, it's, it, and, and I'm not and I'm not bashing parents in any way, shape, or form because that's part of what the what how this realm is structured. But it's a lot of this realm is structured in the sense of to create what we call members. Everybody has to see the same thing, think the same thing, see the same reality. And so there, there's an early time frame where, and it's it's not so much like like it wouldn't be you, Matt, doing that directly. It's it's the it's the mind that you have, which is frightened that you might look at look at it and start saying, hey, the way I've been taught and trained when I was a kid might not be true. So that mind, not you, not the math that's here, right? The deep self, that the thing that's that runs our lives that we don't want it to, and we don't realize it, it's saying, I got to make sure I teach my kid to be just like me so that we're all members together. And there's no, we don't have to have any deep questions about anything. So it would be totally interesting to be able to have an opportunity to raise some children again in the ancient way Another thing I talk about in Falling for Truth, which is something, since we're talking about children and whatnot, that is so, something I now am so disappointed to have missed in my life, and that is the native process of initiation, the ancient way of going from child to adult, the process of where the girl or the boy would be taken away from the village for a year and be trained by the elders. You know, the boy would go with the uh, with the men for a full year and they would learn everything it means to be male and deal with male things and, and how and the woman would or the girl would go with the woman for a year and they would be taught everything they need to know in that phase. And when they returned, they would return with such unbelievable power and also unbelievable um, connection to the other the male and the female would have this unbelievable connection because they were also like the boys were learning well these are what girls are going to be like the girls are learning these are what the boys are going to be like so when they returned there was this inter perfect intermingle not perfect but you know really perfect intermingling of of how the, the the society was going to function and structure and we didn't have this i don't know what i'm supposed to do i don't know my path i don't know my calling uh, I, 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 how am i going to figure stuff out this was done in this early stage of our lives we were it was, and it was helped by 
the grandfathers and the grandmothers who had an important role in the society, which was teaching this child how to go. Now they've lived now 50, 60 years. They know what to share. In our world, the grandfather, the grandmothers and grandfathers get pushed aside, get you in the home as fast as possible. We don't want you talking to anybody. And what a different world we would have if we still had this kind of this kind of realization of the importance of moving from child to adult and actually building adults. You know, when I when I talk about the average 50-year-old, they're a 10-year-old child who's been living for 40 years. They've never really, people have never really become an adult. And you can see this because all you've got to do is give them a little pressure, give them a little stress, and you'll see the eight-year-old all of a sudden, the same way they responded to their parents under stress, it'll be right there. There's not too many. When I meet somebody that is under stress and they're still like unbelievably calm and cool and clear, and they're like, they're, I'm like, wow, I've got an adult in front of me. I've got an adult, male or female, in front of me. This is so cool. And it's just like, but it's unfortunately so rare. Well, yeah. And I think the last couple of years have uh, brought that out more than ever. <clears throat> uh, that little girl you were talking about that talked about herself in the third person, I would be really interested to talk to her. Um, about any memories she might have because a lot of that age range from about two to six seems to be when they remember being someone else or you know i i you aren't my mom you know this other person is my mom and a lot of those were uh, verified too they'd go back and talk to them not verified but you know that some stuff actually checked out oh yeah oh yeah verified verified yeah there's no way this four-year-old is knowing that person's name on the other side of the world. You know, there's no, what some was crazy the story stories. we just heard about the little boy who described his wife and he played guitar or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. That's that probably was. for me. He, You're probably listening to yeah. that on higher side chat. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I listened to a couple of your interviews recently, so it was probably on one of them, but yeah. Can you, them, what yeah. was that story? Can you repeat it? Yeah. This is why it's, it's for these reasons that I've come to say that reincarnation is almost 99% reality now. I, I just, I, I said no to it for a long time, um, but there's just too many verifiable stories, particularly from young children. There's a couple of famous ones. One famous one was a, a kid who was always playing with warplanes, was always whatever. And and when war things would come on, documentaries would come on, he would say that he would correct the people in the documentaries, you know, no, nah, that's actually, that's not that kind of plane. It's this kind of plane. And when the parents would go check it out, it's like, he's right every time. And when they started talking to him about it, he, he actually had, no, I'm this guy with, I died on this particular ship uh, on this attack on, I think it was Iwo Jima and whatever. And when they started tracking it back and it, they found who this person was and they brought photographs of him and he started explaining who all the people were in the photographs. And then when they checked it out, they were all right. They took the kid, I guess, eventually to meet some of the surviving members of this aircraft carrier. And he knew stuff about them. So there's no way that he could know. And then the other story that Jen told was the story of, of a child who, again, four years old or something, was, was describing, this is who I was in the last life. This is where I live. This is my wife. Why am I here? You know, I don't want to live here anymore. I want to get back to her. And they finally said, you know, they found out that there was a woman who lived in that city with that particular name. So they said, okay, to shut our kid up, finally, we're going to go to that city and we're going to let them meet and, and we'll get this out of his system. So they brought him over to the house. And the first thing is like, where's my guitar? 
what do you mean? Well, where's my guitar? Well, it's in the back room. We, I, I don't have it out anymore. Well, let me see it. And he brings it out and he starts playing the guitar. And the parents are like, how does he know how to play the guitar? And they'd be like, what about my books? Do you still have this book and this book? No, I gave that one away to the to the market. Well, what, but I still have this one. Yeah, I have this one. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. This is the one I still have my notes in. And they go through and it'd be like, and the parents are like, what the hell's going on? And they finally started after a, a few instances like this, they started, the, the parents themselves acknowledged, this is the reincarnated husband of this wife. We can't explain it. And by the time the kid turned, they let they let them spend time together over the course of years. But once they turned, once he turned 18, the parents said, go ahead. And he moved in with her in in, uh, in New York and they lived the rest of their life together. The, the parents eventually just realized he's he is still this, he is still in that state. He is still that person. He has not left and become the, the, the new person. So there are so many of these verifiable experiences out there that to me, it's, um, it's almost guaranteed. So that leads us to the problem, the problem with the reincarnation, because people will generally give you an answer of, oh, reincarnation is good because we're coming back here to learn. We're coming back here to, to gain more experiences, to, to, be, to perfect ourselves. Here's the problem. The problem is it almost seems guaranteed that when we come here, we get what's known as the memory wipe. And the memory wipe is the most dangerous thing possible because there's no way this can be a place of learning if you can't remember your past lives. Uh, I give the example in my book. If, if, I have to if I touch a piece of stinging nettle and I burn my fingers, I know put, put some gloves on, I'll pick the stinging nettle and I can have some tea. If in the next life, I don't remember that and I have to keep touching the stinging nettle every single time, that's insanity. You know, I don't go to grade four and forget everything I've learned in grade one to three and have to start all over again. An important part of learning is seeing what you've experienced, what you've gone through, mistakes you've made, and being able to correct and course forward. If we were remembering our past lives, two things would be happening. One, we should be unbelievably aware and brilliant because we would have, there's so many things we would know. But two, more importantly, and this is why it doesn't happen, we would be like the robots in Westworld. Westworld gets, that's a story of being memory wiped. Those robots die. They get taken back to the main control. They get cleaned up. They get patched up and they get memory wiped. So they can get sent back and not remember how many times they've been raped, how many times they've been killed, how many times they've been treated like garbage, because if they did, and that's really what Westworld is. Westworld is the story of Dolores and Maeve remembering their previous lives, remembering their previous incarnations, remembering all the garbage that's happened to them and saying, I'm getting the hell out of Westworld. And this wouldn't work. This reincarnation trap cannot work if we remembered all of our past lives. It seems like some of them slip through. We don't fully get always the forgetfulness. And like we say, young kids still remember pieces of them and parts of them, but if we could remember all the suffering we've gone through, somebody said, well, my life isn't so bad, actually. You know, it's okay. I've got some problems, but it's not too bad. Yeah, but you don't remember the one you just had. And the one you just had might have been truly living hell. And you don't know what the next one that's possibly being set up for. This could be way worse than anything you've ever seen yet. Because think of what, think of, think of the billions of people right now, today, on this planet who are living in nightmarish hell day after day after day, that could be you next. So for me, having come to this understanding, I see there's, I've become almost like a, a Gnostic or, or, or a Cathar or one of these ancient civilization members. It's just, okay, I've come to this reality. I, I now know what it is. It's, 
I'm here to be used as food for basically the system to keep running itself. That's all I'm really here as a body for. I'm not here to grow. I'm not here to learn other than learn the steps I need to take to go home. Just like uh, I've been at, I've been at a party with some friends for all night long. We've been drinking. It's, it's fun for a while, but now it's three in the morning and people are puking on the ground and they're, you know, just walking around. They're slobs now and they're, ah, stay, have one more drink. And I'm like, guys, this is no fun anymore. So I'm going home. That's how I feel about this realm now. I'm going mm-hmm. home. And if my books can get some ideas to help others maybe think about the same possibilities, you know, again, it's just a thesis. It's just what I've come to see. I'm still learning. I don't have all the answers. I don't know how many answers I really do have, but um, I know a lot of people have kind of been comforted hearing my my talks and the things I'm doing because now they don't feel crazy anymore. Or everyone else thinks you must be nuts to think like this. And now here's somebody else coming out who, you know, I seem relatively normal, I, you know, saying something similar and they can go, okay, it's okay to think like this. It's okay to ask these questions. And that's, that's, I, I think that's all I'm trying to say. It's, oh, if you're in, if you're in a similar ballpark as me, it's okay to think about this stuff and come to your own answers. And more importantly, find your own power, find, find your own strength to reach the answer that's yours. You don't want my answer, anyone else's answer. You want your answer. That's the only one that matters. Yeah. And I don't think, uh, like you said at the beginning, it's going to come off as doom and gloom. Um, I don't really see it like that because if what you're saying were to be true, then it's the most positive, awesome thing ever. If you're figuring out what the real point is, is to exit the cave, find the door. So yeah, like you said, I, I don't know how many times I've been recycled either, but every time you show up, it's like, yeah. damn it, really? again? Fuck. I can see what Howdy's saying, though. So I will say you, Joe, already are of the mindset that you're not a fan of this realm. Yeah. I know that about you. So I know that you're going to relate to Howdy's work and say, okay, this is totally understandable. Not necessarily saying, okay, I'm taking this as hard, solid fact. It's just research. It's an idea. It's excellent to listen to. But um, someone from a different mindset might say, if they're very, very married to the idea of, you know, reincarnation's great. I, I mean, I was a little bit like that. I was a little like when I first heard your work, I was like, ooh, it just gave me a, a negative feeling at first. But I was like, nope, I'm going to let it go. I had just read the book Many Lives, Many Masters, which presents a very different idea of re- it's the opposite idea of what you're saying. So what I did was I reanalyzed that book after reading the first six chapters of your book and listening to several of your interviews. And I reanalyzed that book with a different lens. And it makes a lot of sense what you're saying. It, it's not negative. I don't think it's negative. I don't know what is real or what is true. But I think if people listen to what you're saying with a very open mind, it will not come off as negative. But they have to open their mind to it and let go of preconceived notions and ideas. Right. And, and the, the, But the challenge that will come to, to an average person and, and through me, through the course of my life, I've had to go through these stages myself, is, is two things. One is there's always something out there that's going to save me. You know, it could be a religious figure. It could be my mom. It could be Donald Trump. It could be whoever. Someone or something is going to fix everything for me. And uh, we're just waiting for them. That's the famous waiting for Godot, uh, Samuel Beckett play, right? The two the two people are on stage and the, the whole play is they're just waiting for Godot and Godot never comes. That's the, the general truth of a savior. The savior is always in the future. It's never here right now, right? So that's the first one. You have to let go and realize you're your savior. The savior you're looking for is right here. I can save myself and we can talk about prayer next when we get to that. And the other side of that is this idea of, 
once someone starts to see there's something wrong with this realm, because that that's the, that's one of the first steps into this. Someone says there's something wrong here. And that's happened to a, way more people in the last two years than we can imagine. Like with, with this level of insanity worldwide, more people had to start saying there's something wrong with this place. And the point is there's always been something wrong with this place. It's just the degree of the insanity is getting bigger. But generally the natural first rec or the first feeling once you see that is I've got to fix it. There's something wrong with this place and I'm going to fix it. And that's the trap. That's another trap. People have been trying for thousands of years potentially to fix this place. And we just keep going through reset after reset, destruction after destruction. Once we see that the realm is possibly set up to be a particular way and we can't change it. You can't change, a, a video game character can't change the video game. But potentially, they might be able to change their own experience in the video game. They might be able to change the experience of some people with them and and create a small community and have strength and have and and uh, grow together, and then potentially put their energy into the best place that they possibly can. So to me, that also I see that as the second part of it is once you try to fix the world, once you try to save the world, and so many people get caught in that, that can just eat up 10 or 15 years of your life. And then all of a sudden you're standing back there and saying, well, what do I do now? You know, so there's some people that'll be in that point too. You know, they've tried to, you tried to save the world for 15 years and here we are. Okay. Well, yeah. can you save yourself? Can you save yourself? That's, and, and so I'll share my stuff about prayer. Cause I think you guys might really enjoy this part. Cause it's one of the chapters they didn't get to read. Um, so I was having this, I've been having this long discussion with many people about this idea, you know, and I, and I, I like I say, I learned a lot of medicine stuff. I learned how native Indians pray, or I thought I learned how they pray, which was more about thank you than it is about asking for things. But it was, it's still, there's still like, even in there, there's a great spirit, there's a power animal, there's something, that, it's something outside of themselves that was still going on. So it's like, I started thinking, well, why don't we just pray to ourselves? What's wrong with praying to our deepest truest self so i was on the phone with a medicine man friend that i know uh, who lives in france now and i was telling him this and he said oh i got a story for you he said about 20 years ago there was a um there was a a, a drought in new mexico or arizona or something and and it hadn't rained for months and they tried local medicine local medicine men had tried to tried to get it to rain tried to they, they tried to you know they did ceremonies for rain and it, nothing happened so they brought another medicine man in from the north he did his ceremony and it rained that night and they finally asked him why did your ceremony work when the others didn't and his answer was oh the other uh, the other medicine people they were praying for rain so when you pray for something it's not here i just prayed rain and when i took that in i said back to jerry i said so actually what he did is he became rain so it wasn't medicine man praying for rain. It was rain praying for rain. So the only thing that existed was rain. So the only thing that had to happen was rain. And it was like, oh, that's it. There's the secret. If you've become what you're already praying for, how can it not be in existence? It would have to be that you, you've, you know, that that's it's standard self-help stuff, you know, change yourself before you change the world. But now I see it. When you start, if you can actually take that to a, to a, a true level, and I did that with my blueberry picking in the summer. I pick a lot of blueberries and, and store them in my my freezer all winter. And normally I would go and I follow how I'd been taught by my native elders, which is to leave a prayer and leave a gift to to the nature and thank the area, thank the blueberries. But then after my talk with Jerry, I said, 
but this time I'm going to be a blueberry first. So I became, I took time to become a blueberry, and then I gave my prayer blueberry to blueberry. When I went into the forest, uh, it would have been impossible to pick all the blueberries that were there. There was just, they were everywhere. And I'm seeing, yeah. So it's like all, there's all of these little tricks that are, that are potentially in our experience and similar to kind of what Jen had been saying a little while back and, and what Matt had been saying, all of these things get taken out of our world, get taken out of our existence. As we grow up, more and more of these things are pulled away and we're given these other tools that don't really work. They work a little bit, but they don't really work like the real tools we could have. And if we, again, start from scratch again, wow, the stuff that, the stuff that we can, again, accomplish here, if we're not fixing everything, if we're fixing, not fixing, and I hate that word, but you know, transforming here and transforming those around us and those who connect with us, there's a lot that can happen in smaller scale. Yeah. The the funny thing about uh, that method of praying is, especially in the westernized Christian nations, that's an absolute blasphemous heresy to pray to yourself. I mean, that's, that's on the level of uh, Satan trying to become God. You know, you're not God's God is God. But I love what you said earlier too, is when you're praying, how do you know, it's going where you want it to go. And I guess the counter argument would be it's because it's intention based. But if you, if your mind can't conceive of what God is, then how do you know you're sending your prayer to that God? If you can't even wrap your mind around or it, or even if you know where you're sending it to, how do you know that thing is benevolent and has, yeah, no and that, that was always my biggest fear, Jen, and why I didn't pray for the longest time. Cause I was afraid it was going to get intercepted by the wrong team and they were going to take it and use it for ill will, you know? And I was like, I, because I, I don't know who I'm, you know, really directing yep. it. I know who I want it to go to, but I don't know how to get it there. Yep. yep. That's another good question. And so it's not that I would necessarily pay people don't have those prayers. It's can you treat it like a scientific experiment and start, is there a way to test? Mm -hmm. Can you test who or what you're dealing with? Can you find ways to actually truly figure out? Because what we've just been told these beings are very good at making themselves appear to be whatever you want them to be. Um, this happens to me a, a, a lot in my dreams. And I know others will, will say this, in, in, that our dream time is another time we get manipulated quite a, quite a lot. Um, so many stories, of course, about dreams you can talk about. But there's so many times where somebody in my dream who I've been close to in my life, uh, they're in the dream. I interact with them in some usually strange way. I get up the next day and I am totally not right. I'm literally not functioning in a really good way. There's something, and I, I have to go through like a cleansing procedure just to be like awake again. And I started to realize, oh, that wasn't them in the dream. That was some like demonic being pretending to be them. And I, I fell right for it. I just, I followed along. And I, of course, the more, the more attached we are to a form of somebody in this realm, the easier a being who is able to, in a sense, read our our thought patterns and know what what we're all about can pretend to be that thing, and of course, draw us right in. And and the more the more we trust the person in our life, the more we would automatically, especially in the dream state where we don't know what's really going, we'll trust that oh, they're giving us something good, something something that's right. And you and again, we don't know. All of this stuff has to be maybe. I, I've, I've had the opposite. I've had experiences where uh, beings or dead people or whatever have given me the most incredible wisdom. But I afterwards, I never felt heavy and exhausted and tired and, you know, feeling 
totally out to lunch as happens sometimes after this happens in my dream. So just a reminder how often we can be potentially manipulated by these beings and they, they don't just trick us. They trick us in, in many cases by showing us what we hope to see, appearing as we hope we, we, something would appear and then easy that's the easiest way for us to be deceived so the more we can stay aware and the more we can just ask questions and the more we can say maybe maybe that's what i'm talking to maybe it's not i don't know i'm going to give this more time and i'm going to see if see if i can get a clear answer not only are we understanding the situation we're again gaining more and more of our own power more and more of our own authority and um yeah, yeah, even the Bible says to test the spirits. So that's implying that there's good ones and bad ones and probably everything in between. So uh, that's why I don't believe, uh, or not not that I don't believe, but whenever somebody has like a, a download or an alien experience where they gave them all this information, it's like, you don't know that's who they were saying they were from, uh, you know, the Pleiades or whatever. Like, you don't know that's where they're from. They, they call that the same thing we call it. That's amazing. They're from Venus, huh? So... Yeah, just to, and, and but again, you can see that that it we, like 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 we heard said earlier, we so want to believe, we so want to trust an authority, we so want to, we feel so weak, we like we we come, we, like Jen said, we come in here so weak as children that we just we beg for someone or something out there to direct us and guide us and give us until we can get to the point where we feel we know where we're going, and and somehow we 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 lose this natural, yeah, but. I, I I should have all that inside of myself. All that should be here. I don't. I only need some pointers from those outside. I don't need to be told anything. And so it's you can see how easy it is if that hasn't been taken away. If you haven't overcome that, you're easy to be tricked. Yeah, and like we said, the last couple of years, the biggest example of that everyone's very easily tricked because they just want somebody else to tell them what to do, how to live their life, what they should pray to, and without even looking at this perspective you're yeah. presenting today. Okay, Joe. So here's a question since you're going down that particular road. So I'm gonna, I'll ask all of you guys the same question. You might've heard this in one of my other podcasts, but because we talk about, you've talked about oh, how many people have, you know, been fallen for things, how many people have been, we call it downloaded or whatever. But here's the question. Out of the, out of a percentage of 100 of the human population, what percentage of the human population now do you think are actually human? What percentage of the population do you think are robots? And I don't mean like those who are just following, uh, you know, uh, sort of a standards. I mean, literally robots, not human at all. They're just fake non-player characters to make the world look populated. What would be your, what would be your percentages? All three. I'm curious. Oh, that's funny. We've been talking about this lately. I yeah. don't know. I don't know the percentage, but I, um, when I first heard about the NPC theory, I remember I was like, oh, that's just some selfish person saying that, you know, dumb people are NPCs. But then I, I kept looking into it because I didn't want to just think that it was, you know, a stupid theory because it's very interesting. And, uh, the more I looked into it, the more I think that NPCs are a thing, but they're not just the dumb people who are like the plebs oh. of the world, just going and eating McDonald's right. every day. No, they could be people who are major leaders who guide the direction Royals. of the world. Mm. Yeah, or, but I mean, it's just like right. in a, a video game yeah, to but... keep going with that example, like the king in the castle yeah. or the main boss bad guy. Those are all NPCs, but they're very important. Right. You have to pass through them to level up in the game per se. 
So I don't yeah. I don't know the percentage, but I know they're there. I I do feel that. All mm. celebrities, probably. <laughs> most of them. Except Jim Carrey. He seems like he's not. I don't know if all celebrities are. I think a lot of the higher ups in the celebrity world are to guide the celebrities so that they can then influence people. Mm. But I don't know. I maybe some celebrities are too. I'd say as far as a percentage though, I'd say maybe like 50? 60. <laughs> 60. It seems like there's more and more every day, though. Every time I drive down the freeway, I'm like, it might be 80%. It might be 90. Hmm. What do you think, Matt? Yeah, I, I at first I was like, ah, you know what? It's probably like 25, 30%. But then when you said, Joe, you know, if you go out there and you actually participate in their world, that that it goes up. And I would say it's probably 65. I would say it's probably two out of three people nowadays are and and by npc um, I, I think robot howdy i would say that's probably down about 10 15 but i think when we talk npc i'm talking about a human being that doesn't have a soul um i think that's a, a real high number and i think that's where we're in that two-thirds of of people out here like a biological mm -hmm. robot like the greens. yeah yeah <laughs> What do you yeah, think? I know, like, you know, like the, the, early, well, the early part of my work, well, my, I guess of my, I don't want to call it research of my, but when I was in my more obsessed um, period of exercises, sort of before 2005, when I was, when I was attempting to test reality, that was my whole, my whole life was daily exercises to prove anything about the, the, the texture or the solidity of reality. And in the course of that, I began to come across, yeah, humans that were not humans, but obviously spirit beings that were here to provide some sort of message or guidance or whatever. And I could I could start to find those. And I started to notice there was this other, yeah, this other that I'm calling a robot. And I began to notice them more because if I had conversations with them, they had a very tight box of answers um, that they would give. You could You could move to other subjects, but the answers in those subjects would still like be the same. They didn't have many, um, many actual talking points of any depth. Things were very, uh, and I don't want to make it sound, oh, it's simplistic. Because like you say, like Jen said, they, they could be very higher up. They, they could have like, you know, they could be running a company. They could be running a business. They're very successful. But when you actually start asking them about anything, the conversation was like literally B7, C8, answer g19 it was literally like that and, and if you talk to them enough you would get the similar answers to different things just rotating like a small wheel so Algorithm. I, i'm thinking it might be 90 percent non-player characters maybe wow. 95 and that's assuming we've talked about this a lot recently that's assuming that the numbers were given for the world's population is actually true um okay. that would be a, a fuck ton of npcs or robots but uh, what do you think about that, about the actual number of the world's population? I think it's uh, skewed a bit by social media, especially Twitter. But uh, the actual number of, we'll call them meat suits on the planet. What are we at, about 8, 8 billion now, Joe? That's what they say, yeah. Around there. That's what they say. Um, I know somebody did an experiment once or did a diagram that if you took supposedly 8 billion people and you gave every single one of them, I can't remember if it was like 100 square meters of land or I don't know, and it all fit into like Texas and Louisiana, like the whole world's population would literally, with a, an okay little plot of land, they would all fit into like, like an you know, acre two of U.S. states or something. Or something. 
Yep. Yeah, I can't yeah. remember what it was. So it, it's also kind of making you kind of wonder. Yeah, I have no idea what the what the population is. Um, we're back to the we're back to these simulation issues, and we're back to the story of like how much of the world is really here. That that I think that's what that Zen cone is. If a tree falls in the forest, does it make a sound? And people are missing the point. They say, well, you know, sound is this, and this is how sound is created. And it's like, but wait a minute. If if there's no one there existing to experience it, does it exist at all? Can there have been a tree and can there have been anything fallen? It's like that, that quantum physics, right? Like there's stuff behind me here that according to quantum physics doesn't exist because I'm not paying attention to it. It only exists now because I'll turn around and now my wood pile is there. It, it manifested itself. And that's a story that happened to me again, when I was doing this intense period and, and almost, I almost went crazy in the middle of it because of what was happening. I got up to pee at like four o'clock in the morning and I noticed a floating uh, uh, barcode, uh, uh, IPC barcode above the toilet, just floating there. And I'm looking at it and I'm like, but barcodes don't float. They're usually attached to something. And as soon as I said that, a bottle of cleaner formed around it. And then some other cleaners formed. And I just went, oh, shit. And I started looking around the room. And it was literally like the room started manifesting itself. And I was realizing, okay, did I at that moment of time, because I had so little mental energy, I created the floor I needed to walk on and the toilet I needed to pee in because that's what was required in that state. And everything else literally wasn't in existence until I started questioning the reality. And it started literally forming in front of me to make what I was expecting to, to find. And I started doing experiments like that in my day-to-day -day world and found out that's actually true, that the world is actually formulating because we're making it uh i don't say we're creating it that's not the right word we're making it <clears throat> we're making it manifest to us or, or we're, we're making our perception able to perceive certain worlds and if we learn how to shut that off we actually shut off reality it's actually it's actually not here and like that was real time uh, rendering got some gpu laggage <laughs> that's yeah. a wild story man well, you guys have anything else you want to talk about before we get out of here? That was a great talk, man. I appreciate it. Yeah. Matt, you got anything you want to go to? or no, I, I know well, you're the World's Fair I guy and stuff, so I, I don't know if there's something you wanted to bring up and ask about those or, or an area of like your research we can get while you're here. You know, if you got something that you really wanted to ask, go ahead. Yeah, one of the things I wanted to ask about is I, I've heard you talk about the energies of, of a lot of the places you visited, whether it's the pyramids, Stonehenge, mm -hmm. um, Ebery, all these different. Have you ever been to any star forts and or, or yes. have you seen any of them and, and, and the energy around them? Because that's one of the anomalies that I'm finding in this area is the star forts, because yeah. they're all over the, the, the realm. And. They seem to be more than just a, a a simple defensive position, as they would be, you know. Yeah, told that video there. that guy did. There was a video about a year ago. Some guy did about a, a star fort in northern Manitoba, like Fort Churchill or something. Uh, this literally this star fort in the middle of nowhere that was supposed to be garrisoned by like I don't know, like you know, ten British soldiers or something, and the French and the whatever they came with hundreds of so and they couldn't take the thing. 
they couldn't capture it. And there's literally, there's no damage to it even. There's like, it's like pristine, it's perfect. And there's like, there's no explanation as to how this thing could have ever survived all the attacks that it's supposed to have had on it. So yeah, I've been to a few star forts, nothing that I would classify as like a star fort that is, yeah, some, yeah there it is, Churchill, Manitoba, this thing right here. This was supposed to, I don't know, have like three or four soldiers. I don't know what they said it had attacked by hundreds and they could never attack it. And as you can see, never shows any damage. It's an amazing video that this guy walked around it. He was actually there and they videotaped different parts of, of trying to explain what it's doing. Um, I know I went to a lot of them as a kid. I was traveling around the U.S. a lot to look at like Fort McHenry. I think that was a star fort. Some of these ones like Mitchell, not Mitchell and Mackinac, but Fort Mackinac, I think was a star fort. So all of these things are star forts. Um, the ones I've been to, though, have been, the energy's been okay at them. I can't say they've been, but again, it, the challenge is we know they're connected to other things. So like I, Trondheim is the closest city I have with a star fort. The, the main cathedral, the Nidaros Cathedral, the cathedral's got a good energy, but there's one particular part of the cathedral that's built to it in perfect um, Fibonacci sequence. So that place has a, a giant energy. And I don't doubt if that and some other things were running, the star fort would be running stronger as well. So for me at this point, I found the star forts to be almost like they're turned off. But I, uh, like, I would say the best place to test would be Palma Nova, Italy. Right, yeah. that one that's like star fort on top of a star fort on top of a star fort, where the whole city is like star forts. That's the city I would use as my test point to say, what do I think this is doing, and what do I think different points energetically, um, and and what I would want to do if I was studying that the same as if I was now going back to the cathedrals again in Italy, if I you know ever get there again, um, would be getting the rose patterns on the windows, the rose petal patterns on the on the stained glass windows, and have got the cymatic wave pattern first to match what is the what is the cymatic wave pattern? Same thing. What is the star fort's snowflake pattern? What is its cymatic pattern? What is the wave it's supposed to be creating? So can I find a way to feel or test that exact particular energetic wave? That's how I would know if it's working or not, right? Um, yeah, because that's one of the things uh, I was looking at was to see if, you know, they're charged by ley lines. Is it is it an ethereal charge? Is it more of a telluric charge? Is it under the ground? Is it a combination? You know, and, and but like you said, most of them at this point in time have been, you know, unplugged, so to speak. They're, they're not yeah, like another another example would be Avebury. Like, like, for example, I talked about many things, how Stonehenge is dead, but Avebury in England is still on. And Avebury is, is it's more than just the stone circle. It's like a giant wall, like wall, or not wall, uh, roadway of stones that wind in a giant serpent all along the pathway, very similar to the way the serpent mound in Ohio is set up. So that's Avebury. And it just in the middle of it is this giant stone circle. But I've walked the whole thing. I walked the entire serpent. And the energy keeps getting stronger and stronger and stronger as you want. But have I tested if I went like outside of Avebury? Yeah, there you go. Um, yeah, you can see sort of like the stone walkway there. And then you can see the inner, the, you're seeing the inner circle of the of where the main stones are, which are just giant. They're just massive stones. Um, if I went outside of the walkway of the road, the energy was there, but not so strong. When I was in the walkway, it was strong. When I got to the center of, of Avebury, 
I couldn't actually stand still. If I kept my feet on the ground, the fire in my legs was so strong, I thought I was going to, yeah, I was going to burn up. I thought I would catch on fire. And so I had to always keep moving. And uh, I normally like to sit with stones and, you know, just spend time. And I couldn't. In Avery, I thought if I sit down, I'm going to catch on fire. That's how, that's how much energy it had. So my feeling is it's it somehow, I feel that the stones are in a way like acupuncture needles on the human body. So they're, so they're following the meridians of the earth. So just the way, uh, you know, someone in China can put a, a needle here and that can, you know, control your triple warmer, which is, you know, control your, your heat levels and your stress level and whatever. Well, same thing. They're, they're putting the stones in exact places in the earth's energy grid that are affecting how that works. So yeah, if you're, if you can follow the energy grid, I'll give you another great one. When I, I used to take people to stone circles here in uh, Norway years ago, the, the population here, no kind of know nothing about them don't even know they have them or they think they're just viking burial sites they have no idea they go to they go to england to see stone circles right so i started taking norwegians to their own stone circles and having all sorts of experiences and healings taking place one guy showed up there one time and he was tracking ancient church the old original uh, they're called stavkirkas the original churches here in norway and he found that if you place them all they all fit on lines that all ran to this one giant cathedral in Trondheim. Every single of the old churches in the whole country all match on these perfect lines. And then when, when he started coming to the stone circles, I said, okay, let's start plotting all these stone circles. They fit on all the lines. Not one of the stone circles was anywhere off any of these giant lines. So for me, if you could find the, the main ley lines in any Starford area you're looking at, I almost guarantee they would run through the Starford. And then you would find out, yeah, by extending the lines, what other ancient sites do they fall on top of? What other Starforts do they connect? And you would then start maybe beginning to, to almost grasp um, what is what does what would be that energy line's energy, perhaps? What could you use that one for as compared to that one? That's something I found about stone circles. You can do completely different things in different circles. They all have energy. They all can heal. They all can give you information. But depending on what you want or need, there's different. I would send somebody to a different circle for a different purpose. And I would almost same thing, star for it, same thing for the building, same thing for the cathedrals. They all, they do something slightly different energetically. And if you know combination of what that structure does and what you're going to for, you'd have a better combination of, uh, connecting with that energy. Damn, that's interesting stuff. We could do a whole show just on that. Oh yeah, that's a that's a whole another show between ley lines and and cathedrals yeah. and I mean, there's a book out there just on the on the French uh, cathedrals and and the ley lines and how there is a a design to the way that the cathedrals yeah. are laid out so that yeah. they they work together in a network. It's yeah, it's amazing. Oh yeah. Like you go to a place like Chartres where you've also got the labyrinth in the middle. Mm -hmm. It's a place that's just like energetically. One of the, it's, it's Chartres is probably the most energetic place outside of Egypt or Mexico I've ever been. I, I'm with you. Just, I think France is one of those spots that is very, very significant in, in this realm, at least. I think energetically, I think from the historic perspective, I think there's something about that area that is very, very powerful. What I'm going to do is after the after we're done with the video, I'm going to make sure that uh, Joe, whatever, gets the, the access to the complete book so you can have the whole 15 chapters because then I think oh, you'd really like to read my chapter 14 on, on the Cathars and particularly some of my stuff on 
why I'm starting to think that the New Testament might be a hidden code to explain that this story took place in southern France, and why that would explain then what the Knights Templar really were, what the Cathars really were, why the Church of Rome needed to kill off all of these groups who might have had the exact direct connect. And if the history, if the timeline is wrong, if the Jesus story, let's say, takes place a thousand years ago, not two thousand years ago, like we've been told, if if we change the time frame, you're actually would be killing off literally the first descendants of the original disciples. It would make sense why you needed to kill this group off. It's an interesting theory, and there's lots of sort of what you might call circumstantial evidence that could make that as an indication. So I'll make sure you got that, and you can look into that yourself and see if that becomes a another like like I know Matt, you need another area of study to go into, yeah. but you know we'll just throw <laughs> that on to you. Oh, but that's that's so fascinating, though, Howdy. I mean, just thinking about because that. because to me, if that was true, and again, it's an if. Yeah. Boy, that explains a whole lot of other hanging historical stories that don't make any sense. All of a sudden, things start to make sense. And someone might say, well, you're you're just you're destroying the Christian faith. Well, no, actually, I'm not. I'm no, actually maybe showing you that there's been a deception in it. And there's actually an even deeper truth and actually even even more powerful truth. And literally, if you you if you take a pilgrimage, you could go maybe find the real place, not the not a place that's been pretend place you could find the actual energy because so much in the middle in the medieval times the people of southern france called all of their mountains in their cities by biblical names they were there, there was a there was a mount tabor there was a you know a place where the pentecost really happened there was they built they don't the, the medieval french believed there were specific places and it might be not just wishful thinking they might have still had the memories of something that is really uh there and like i say man that would explain a lot of the history and, of france and it would make sense too howdy because what have we done we've been led astray by like dan brown and the da vinci yep. code and those books that you know it's just propaganda out there that they do to sell things but in reality if this was a real story around that it would definitely make sense with a little bit of truth right with a little bit of truth thrown in there so that there's enough that people can say oh yeah but that's, I think that's true. And yep. then you just, you concoct something else around it. Like, because when you're talking about Dan Brown, that, that came out of Holy Blood, Holy Grail, right? Which was written by Henry Lincoln and a few other guys. Lincoln had done some, Lincoln's a, a strange story in himself. He's, he's a really, his story is strange. Um, but just as he was getting ready to do a giant expose on the landscape, on the geometry of the Southern France landscape, and how many literally uh, measurements and geometric figures and pentagrams and whatever fit on the landscape, these two other guys show up and convince them, no, let's write a book about the bloodline of Jesus. Let's write a book about Jesus having kids, and that's what this is all about. And all of a sudden, that's where the focus went. And it took 10 or 15 years before Lincoln started writing again about all of this, ge all the geometrical stuff, all the unbelievable mathematics of the landscape. But by then, no one could hear that. They could only hear what had been in this controversial book and it's almost like yeah like you say it was set up to give a little truth and then a giant turn to get people to say only look here focus on this disprove this if you want but don't go look for the real truth over here and that's kind of where that got me kind of that's kind of been my whole life guys it's kind of been like i bump into stuff in my life and then something just goes there's something here i don't know what it is but whatever's being presented to me, the narrative is wrong somehow, but I don't know what's right, but 
I can't not look into it. I have to look into it. And I've, I've lived a difficult life. I've lived a life that I gave up a lot of things in my life uh, in order to do a lot of this research. And for a lot of my life, to be honest, I felt very, I felt maybe I wasted my time. You know, I'm, no, no one buys my books. No one pay, No one listens to anything I might have to say. Maybe I, I just made a mistake. I put all this time in and I, I, I could have bought a nice car. I could have bought a nice house. I could have whatever, you know. And then all of a sudden, during this crazy two-year insanity, some switch changed in my life. And all of a sudden, my YouTube channel started. People started buying the books, wanting to have interviews like this. And all of a sudden, I now feel like all of this time and effort, all the work I've done, um, there's a value in it now for other people. And, and I've learned over the last 20 years how to present things better, how to, I, I had a bit of an arrogant edge to me. Uh, 15 years ago, I, I thought I knew everything. I thought I got all the answers. And it's taken a lot of time to start being able to realize maybe I've got a piece of the jigsaw puzzle. And I, I need to share that because others have a piece of the jigsaw puzzle. And the only way we'd ever learn everything is everybody takes their piece, puts it together, acknowledges other people's work, acknowledges their own. And maybe that's how we find stuff. So it's like, a, it's been a long journey, but uh, I'm thankful now for it, but it hasn't it hasn't always been easy to get to this point. And, um, and the second thing I'd like to say is that we've talked about a lot of stuff from the standpoint of exiting the matrix and getting out of here and stuff about being in the cave, handling being in the cave. And I, both are, to me, both are important. To me, finding what you would call truth or your true self or your totality or leaving the matrix, that's important, but it's also equally important to not deny this realm right which is called spiritual bypassing is to is to pretend this is not important or pretend pretend nothing matters here or that there aren't ways that you can be of service and help others and that's one of the most important things that i think of learning what you might call skills or or tools or whatever it's not so much to make yourself important or or to give yourself power it's what's another thing i can find that can be helpful to other people what's another skill i can learn and use that is being of service and i think if you're doing both you have the i'm going to be in the realm and i'm going to try to be of service and be useful but i'm going to be also selfish and realize but i'm going for truth i'm going to find out whatever the hell's going on here i want to know that and if you find this nice balance like everything walk in the middle path between everything um then i think you've got a really good chance of doing something that no matter what when you finally leave and, pa and pass away from this realm you can say well maybe i didn't find out everything but i did okay i i i i, I used my time well yeah well said. well i want to i want to personally yeah. thank yeah. you Hattie, because i wouldn't be doing this right now if if uh and wouldn't be having this conversation if it wasn't for your work because it, it reignited a uh a fuel a passion in me and you know like you said though this stuff isn't easy, you know, putting your work out there and putting yourself out there is not easy. But at the same time, if you go into it with the understanding that if we can help just a few people, right, if you can, and I went into it, I created my podcast and I, my mission statement was if I can get one person to think a little differently or just question something, I've done my job. And then anything after that was gravy. And now, you know, I'm, I, I got, almost a hundred episodes under and you know there's people that say thank you and there's people that are like yeah this it's made a difference and it's like okay well you know monetarily it may not it may not be what it is but 
that's not what it was meant to be, right? And and that's what I get out of this is in in our matrix world, everything that is is valuable, right, is supposed to have some tangible number dollar value to it. When in reality, I feel like what you're saying right there, and and that whole idea of spreading, you know, knowledge, spreading love, spreading you know, community and spirituality together, togetherness, I should say, um, is what it's all about. And, and, and I do think, you know, your work is important. I think what Joe and Jen does is important. And, you know, I'll even admit, I think what I do now is, is a little bit important because it does have a positive impact on other people's lives. And in this day and age, when things are, you know, not the best, you know, things are a little wild and chaotic and you need things like this. So from, from me to you, howdy, thank you, sir. I appreciate your, your work and, and it has made a difference in my life. Great. Well, and maybe sometime coming up, you and I can get together then and we'll talk on your channel and we can go into something in depth with the fairs if you want. Oh, I'd to. love to. Play around. Sure. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. how do you tell everyone where they can find your work and your books? Yeah. Well, so, uh, so actually, so people know my name. If you're Google searching me, it ends with an I, not a Y. I'm just seeing it scrolling across the screen. So that oh. would make it easier. Howdy McCoskey with an I. I just Yo. caught that now. Um, <clears throat> that's fine. Oh, he's gonna. Okay, so we'll wait to do the official. Yeah, they. Um, yeah, you can go to. That's my terrible named website, EgyptianWisdomRevealed.com, uh, with all the dashes in there. And uh, right now, my new book, Exit the Cave, is available as a PDF file. It's a. It's by donation, and uh, you can get it as a PDF or an ebook. It should be out as a print book in the next five to six days. So we. I finally got it ready for the print version. So the print version should be out and the audio version of it will be out in about um, in about a month. Maybe I'm just starting to read it now. If you go to Howdy McCoskey Talks, you can catch up on some of the videos and things I'm talking about. You'll also updates on what's going on. If you checked my name on Amazon, you could at least, you could see the other books or you could find them on my website as interesting. Of course, you don't have to buy the books from Amazon. You can buy them from wherever you want to buy them. It's just a standard place to go and check them out. And um, yeah, you kind of go to those places and um, I, I don't know what to say. You know, I kind of, I got the book out as a PDF. Okay, I'm going to, this is going to be heavy to end this with, but I got the book out as a PDF file because I didn't want to wait for the book to, for it to come out as a book because I didn't know how long we all have. And this is, this is, we all have to really take this seriously. This realm could at any time just switch over into pure chaos. And, and it is potentially going in that direction. If there's something that's important to you, whether it's a book, whether it's a podcast, whether it's a, an, a, an audio thing you want to hear, something that you think is you want to have this for a long time in your life, get it now. Don't think it's still going to be available in six months. Make sure that you have whatever book or whatever, get it now for yourself um, hopefully it's still there in six months, but don't think it will be on the other side of that. And that's, and that's why I really want, and that's why I made sure I put them into book form because I'm hoping that no matter what books will survive longer than things that are on electronic media. Yeah. On the flip side of that changed. though, we're, I think we're in such chaos and such challenge because there's a doorway that's open right now. I think right now, somewhere cosmically, there's a place where, you can walk 
so deeply that's maybe never been available for a long, long time. And I think a lot of what's going on is designed to distract everybody away from the great possibility that actually exists for you as an individual, right? Not for the group of humanity, not for the non-player characters, not for the world, but for you. I've known a couple of people in the last year, they've managed to do in like two months what would normally take somebody three or four years of work. The advancement that they've gone through is staggering. And I think that's, that possibility is there. So even if things are difficult, even if things are tough, and I know a lot of people feel alone. You've been, you've been in many cases, your family is, 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 is not talking to you anymore. Your friends don't want to talk to you anymore. They think, they think you know, there's something wrong with you. Don't worry about that. There's others that are just like you in that state. There are others who are feeling the same way and who think the same way you do. And find them. Go out. Look in the comment sections of videos that you like. There's there's people there that you can communicate and talk to and get to know and recognize you are moving. You have a possibility that's maybe hasn't been around for a long, long time. So no matter how hard it is, remember that and allow yourself to say, Okay, whatever step it is you want to take, just take it because you never know. You just might achieve it way faster than you ever thought. Well said, sir. Well, thank you so much, you guys. Thanks, Matt, for uh, co-hosting with us. And, of course, you can find uh, The Great Deception on all podcast players. And I wanted to end with a, a little quote from your book from the note at the beginning. And it pretty much wraps it up. Anyone who says they know for certain what happens after we die or how and why this universe was created is lying and i think that's a great way to end it up thanks guys thanks everybody in the live chat and the audio listeners we will catch you guys next time <laughs>